now presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. What is up, podcasts? This is your favorite podcast host on your favorite podcast, the king of stuff. Thanks for joining me this week. We have another interview with William A. Jacobson, also Bill Jacobson, also known as the Legal Insurrection Guy. Uh, Legal Insurrection, it's been a go-to site. I'm sure you've heard of it. I'm sure you read it, read it more. Uh, It's been a go-to site for 15 years or so. So it has been in the blogosphere for many, many years. And its creator and lead writer is my guest today. For his day job, William Jacobson, is a law professor. He's also the director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School. You'll see him quoted in the media a lot. You'll see his articles passed around on the internet a lot. And he's also written op-eds all over the place, been a guest all over the place. And I thought it'd be a great idea to have him on to talk about the continuing legal vagaries going on in Trump world with, of course, the raid slash not raid on Mar-a-Lago. Um, It was recently announced that a special master has been assigned to review the evidence that the FBI collected. I didn't know what the heck that meant. So I was like, might as well talk to someone who's far smarter in these things than me. And also just talking about um, every other week, you see another member of the legal team for Trump arrested or indicted or whatever. Just this weird harassment of his entire legal team, which just, it seems a little odd. We also get into the... um, Biden speech, which was creepy. The Red Wedding speech, I guess we can call it. But we get into all that. So why don't we get to that interview? And after that, I will bellyache about other stuff in the news. Bill Jacobson from Legal Insurrection. How the heck are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. I think it's my first time on your podcast. Yeah. It's amazing because we've known each other a long time. I know. I know. Yeah, we were trying to figure out when we had a delicious Mexican meal in Scottsdale, Arizona, and none of us can remember. We're so we're both so young and fresh that we just it couldn't have been that long ago. But yeah, we have known each other a long time. Legal Insurrection has been one of the stalwarts um, blog starting. I had to look it up since 2008. Tell our listeners about it because they're probably familiar. If not, this will impel their visit to your site quickly. Sure. Well, Legal Insurrection, first post was October 12, 2008. And uh, it was really just me, like a lot of bloggers in that time period, frustrated with what was going on. There were platforms easily available and for free. I went on to Google Blogger. I came up with the name because I was super frustrated and the word association insurrection came to mind. And I looked it up and an insurrection by definition is illegal. So I said, well, maybe that's not the best thing to have. So I called it legal insurrection, which of course is a contradiction in terms. It started off uh, for whatever the reason, dumb luck, the kindness of strangers in the blogosphere, our stuff started to take off very quickly. I was at the time and still am a law professor at Cornell University Law School. And I was solo for two years at Legal Insurrection. And then I brought on a second blogger in year three, who was an undergraduate from uh, Cornell, someone, because I was the advisor to the Cornell Republicans. I'm the advisor to basically every right of center group on campus, because there's (laughs) literally nobody else to be their advisor. Uh, And, uh, and then, so it was just, and then over the years, we've become a little bigger, a little fancier website, uh, more, now we pay people and we have staff. And then, uh, so that's what we've been doing. And uh, I'd call it a politics and law blog. So probably 70 to 80% politics, but where politics intersects with the law. And so that's kind of the niche we've carved out. Uh, we do cover general political things, but that overlap between law and politics is kind of our specialty. And we started a foundation in 2019, Legal Insurrection Foundation. So this is now part of the Legal Insurrection Foundation. Fantastic. Well, yeah. And everybody check it out, especially when we have uh, crazy legal things brewing. Um, A good reason to go there is the continuing commentary on this Mar-a-Lago raid. Now, when this happened, 
it was almost like what are the what are those kooky kids say the red pill moment but a lot of people who have just been like oh yeah going along to get along with politics are like wait a minute now we're sending the fbi against former and maybe future candidates former presidents future candidates for the presidency this is banana republic stuff and i had people who are independent saying that to me um i had people who never voted for trump saying that to me going wait a minute this doesn't smell right so i i think that was a wake-up call for some people with me i'm like i can't believe they actually did it but yeah it totally makes sense they did it um and now we've had the news and i am flummoxed by it because i am not a legal brain um, I went, as listeners know, I went to Arizona State, the Stanford of the West, as we like to call it. Um, yeah, so we are not, uh, I'm not up on the special master stuff. What the heck is a special master and uh, what is the significance? Because it's something that Trump's legal team asked for it. And everybody in the press says, what a moron, what an idiot. There's no chance. And then immediately it was granted. So why don't you explain what this is exactly? A special master is not uncommon. It's not in every case, but where the court has an issue typically regarding privilege or some document production issue, and the judge doesn't want to spend all her time doing this and reviewing documents, and the judge has other things to do. So sometimes they will appoint uh, a magistrate judge. And in fact, in this case, a magistrate judge issued the warrant or approved the warrant and may even be the special master, we don't know. But a special master is typically somebody who is hired by the court to oversee these sticky issues of privilege and things like that. The concept being that somebody who's neutral has to review it. And so the special master is just someone hired specially for this case as a, an arm of the court. And this has happened in a lot of cases. So I don't know why all the I call them the resistance Twitter lawyers were like, oh, this can't happen. This can't happen. Never going to happen. Well, it kind of makes sense. The only wrinkle here is that it probably should have happened two to three weeks ago, not now. Uh, and that I put the blame on Trump's lawyers for not being in court quicker on it and pressing it harder. But it is there. It's not that unusual. And it's simply a way of the court managing the workload by bringing in a special person. Now here, that special person is going to have to have security clearance and things like that because they're going to review a lot of things that you need a security clearance for. That's just an added complication. But the concept of a special master is not rare. It's not unusual. And it's really not controversial in most cases. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would be controversial here because we're dealing with this huge number, you know, not totally specified number of documents, including apparently, according to the DOG slash uh, FBI, a lot of stuff that they hoovered up along with it, you know, going rifling through Melania's stuff and, oh, we got some bills and we got some different things. Uh, it's kind of a hodgepodge of items. It seems like both sides in that case would want the special master just to kind of go, okay, what do we got to send back immediately? What's actually legitimate? What should never have been taken in the first place? Well, it, it certainly makes sense here because according to the court's decision, uh, there were medical records scooped up by the feds. There were um, tax records scooped up by the feds, even though neither of those was really called for by the warrant. There were, uh, according to the inventory, a lot of clothing and gifts. We don't know what that consisted of. There were books that were seized that are not claimed to be classified. There are several hundred uh, newspaper clippings and magazine clippings. So apparently, not surprisingly, Trump liked to save articles about himself. Okay, they grabbed those too. Uh, so there's all sorts of stuff. Some of it's a little humorous, like the, the newspaper clippings, but some of it is potentially very sensitive, like medical records and tax records, as we know. And one of the things the judge said is that given the history in this case of information leaking that and the government acknowledging in court that there have been leaks, although, of course, saying, well, we don't know who did it. It wasn't us. Okay, It wasn't the team on this case, but acknowledging that they've taken place. The judge, I think, rightly said that Trump has a privacy interest here. And that given the leaking from the government, these documents all need to be secured. And 
really should not be used any further by the government in this case until the special master has ruled whether the government properly can keep them. So none of this is actually controversial, uh, Mm -hmm. except for the fact that you have an intolerant media who's out for blood against Trump and you have a social media, mostly Twitter, of the blue checks who are out for blood against Trump. And they see this judge as potentially getting in the way of that because they want to just steamroller this. And we don't actually know these so-called classified documents. We know that they bear markings of classification, but we don't know if these are documents that have been previously declassified. So for example, Trump, the day before he left office, issued an order in writing. You can see it. It's still on the White House website archives, declassifying documents regarding Crossfire Hurricane, which was essentially the FBI's investigation of his campaign. Uh, And so maybe these documents that were spread out on the floor and photographed by the FBI are, in fact, documents he explicitly, in writing, declassified. We don't know. The that's going to have to be sorted out because there's a lot of proceedings that are going to go forward. But the special master, you would think the government would want it, but they don't want it because their view is they run these investigations and and no court should be interfering in that. So we'll see what happens. But why this is controversial is simply political, it has nothing to do with legal. Yeah, that, that completely makes sense. And um, it's one of those things where if the left demanded a special master, everybody was saying how essential it is and the democracy will die if it is, what isn't appointed immediately kind of a thing. So um, and, and especially when you get to uh, the Twitterati opining on legal uh, things. Yeah, they're no more qualified than I am. And <laughs> at least I've read an article to a, a article or two about it. But boy, there's been some bad legal advice flying on the Twitter machine. Yeah, I mean, some fairly prestigious people have just, because of the Trump era, have really soiled themselves on Twitter. I mean, Lawrence Tribe was a very well-respected professor at Harvard Law School, many times, decades ago, talked about possible nominee to the Supreme Court if a Democrat got to nominate him. And in the era of Trump, he's just really gone berserk. And uh, he has, you know, thrown about the treason word and the treason accusations all throughout Russiagate and really, I think, has lost a lot of respect. And there are many other law professors who simply approach this from a purely political point of view. They wouldn't admit that, but it is when you look at it. And really, I think the public is being very poorly served by the resistance Twitter lawyers. Yeah, and I might be remembering wrong, but it seems to me I first became familiar with Lawrence Tribe during the Clinton era, and people were floating him always, as you say, as a possible candidate to the Supreme Court. Conservatives were terrified, not only because his left-leaning perspective, but also because he was so fearfully intelligent and brilliant. And oh my gosh, what if this guy's on the court? We're going to have a tough time undoing anything he comes up with because he's so smart. And now... It's like he's uh, failed. He's Rob Reiner, basically, just screaming on Twitter. It's really sad to see. Yeah, it is. And, and you see that in, in so many things on Twitter. But as relates to the law in this case and anything related to Trump, it's really bizarre. And so don't get your legal analysis from <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> right, right. Definitely. Um, the other thing that has been big in the news, and I know you've written about it, I've written about it is this bizarre and it kind of pairs well as like a month after the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Now you have Joe Biden talking about super ultra extreme mega semi-fascists, um, which at some times he says, Oh no, I'm only talking elected officials and only a tiny amount of Republicans. Another time, basically anyone to the right of Joe Biden is this week is uh, this threat to democracy. You had this, um, the red wedding speech where he's, you know, gloom around him and red lighting and he's yelling at Americans and saying that uh, basically we're at war with people who disagree with me. It was very bizarre to see um, lots of people on the left and, and kind of the non-committed, you know, the the semi-celebrity who leans left was like, what the heck was up with that staging? Figure it out. 
But does it say more than just Joe Biden as a desperate politician who's screaming the equivalent of he's going to put y'all back in chains? And he says, I got to give this dire, scary speech so we don't get completely destroyed in the midterms or gosh, with the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago and so forth. It just makes me nervous that something more is coming or he would love to provoke something more. Yeah, I think it's it's all of the above. I think my first takeaway is that this is the real Joe Biden. And you just mentioned for putting people back in chains. I think that comment was made vis-a-vis Romney. Okay. Right. Uh, the right wing radical bomb thrower. Right. Okay. So when he says he's only against MAGA Republicans, uh, of course, that's a lie because he, you know, attacked Romney viciously. He is known as the father of Borking, meaning the uh, vicious attacks on Judge Robert Bork to keep him off the Supreme Court. Uh, Joe Biden has been a flamethrower and a nasty piece of work his entire political career. He was repackaged in 2020 as kind, grandfatherly Joe Biden, but that was a complete fabrication. So what you're seeing now is Joe Biden's real nature coming out. And what we saw was really, I think, at a a whole other level. I mean, certainly Trump calls people names, people call Trump names, politicians call each other. But this was a a full-blown attack on tens of millions of voters um, in really demonic and dehumanizing terms. I mean, his punchline or one of his punchlines is that MAGA Republicans, and I'm just reading it now, thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. And this is the sort of talk that you would expect in a country where a political power or a, a dictator is getting ready to purge people, is getting ready to ethnically cleanse people. This is not normal talk. This is really dehumanizing an entire segment of the population. And so this was at at a totally different level. And I think what's going on here is one, it is the real Joe Biden, just nasty piece of work, but also it's a deliberate strategy for 2022. The goal of the Democrats is to put Donald Trump on the ballot in 2022 because they think if they can put Donald Trump on the ballot in 2022, they can peel away some Republicans and they can peel away some independents and they can stop people from talking about the fact that the border is wide open and that um, inflation is rampant and that there are serious structural problems where the Democrats are undermining our energy security, not just independence, but security. And so I think this is, all of the above, that this is a deliberate strategy. And as you somewhat alluded to, you know, we don't know what really motivated the FBI and DOJ. They haven't revealed that. They haven't revealed why on August 5th of all days did they need to run into court to get a secret search warrant. We don't know. They've not revealed that. But look at the timing. How coincidental is it that just as the Democrats are ramping up their strategy to put Donald Trump on the ballot in 2022 and get everybody to talk about Donald Trump and only Donald Trump, the FBI raids his house in an unprecedented move. And now everybody's still talking about Donald Trump all the time. So this is all too too cute by half. And I think that it's a very dangerous time. We have a Democrat party that is really decided that demonizing the voters, not just the politicians, we're used to politicians being demonized, but demonizing tens of millions of Americans is their electoral strategy. Yeah. And I think you saw that before it was like foreshadowing and intended to be foreshadowing with the January 6 hearings, because it was something that started near the beginning of summer and they rolled it out. And what was so strange about it is people would stop talking about Trump and all of a sudden they'd schedule another hearing. It wasn't like, okay, we're meeting every day for the next 10 days and we're going to let it play out. Instead, it just seems like whenever they need a a boost in the polls, 
hey, we have we have we have more evidence. Look at this, and then it falls apart a couple of days later. But they're talking about still having more. It's just like okay, so you're not really trying to find anything out. You just want something convenient when you need a good news hook, and there doesn't happen to be I don't know a really good football game on opposite. You'll throw up another hearing. And that's why I think you're right. We don't know what's to come, but something is to come mm-hmm. because they need this. Yeah, they, they need it. I don't think it will be an indictment of Trump prior to the election. Uh, I don't think the DOJ has the cojones to do that. Okay, Uh, maybe they will after 2022, but I don't think they have it in them to do it before then. Uh, But there's going to be something. There'll be more leaks. There'll be maybe new raids someplace else to gather more documents. There'll be impending doom and there'll be ramped up attacks on so-called MAGA Republicans. And I, so I think some Democrats have, this is their strategy. And I don't think they're gonna walk away from it. Yeah, another thing I wanted to ask you too, with your you know law ex- expertise, here's something me, a lay person, doesn't quite understand. It, it seems like all these lawyers associated with Donald Trump are under investigation themselves. And this first kind of popped my mind with the whole scandal about John Eastman, they seized his phone. They've been going after him. And um, it, it was something that seemed odd to me because I tried as best as I could understand, read John Eastman's um, understanding of, okay, here's how we count the electoral votes. From what I gathered, I didn't agree with it, but I'm like, okay, half of legal agreements or legal uh, theories I don't agree with. So I read people for him. I read people against him. I'm like, yeah, I think it's a little too far, but I'm not an expert in this. And to see the harassment of this guy, um, which has been extreme, and we're going to seize his phone. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's giving a legal opinion. He did not launch an insurrection. He did not uh, throw a torch into, um, I don't know, a gas station. He's giving his legal opinion when your client says, okay, what's the craziest you know, what's the what's the best chance I have, even if it's crazy to win this and a lawyer provides this, you don't attack the lawyer for it. I don't know. The the whole thing, it just seems like every week another part of Trump's legal team is under investigation or maybe indictment. And it just seems very strange. Well, this is again one of the troubling things about how the Biden administration has weaponized the federal prosecutorial bureaucracy. And in this case, it's to deprive Republicans of the ability even to get lawyers. And we've seen that down in Florida. Trump had trouble finding lawyers to even represent him in court. That might have been why it took him two weeks to ask for that special master. And that has been a concerted uh, and organized and well-funded Democrat operation. Uh, David Brock is leading it at Media Matters through some new group he formed Uh, which has a gazillion dollars, no doubt. And they are literally trying to harass any lawyer who would represent Trump or represent any of the people charged in January 6th or represent people like John Eastman. So Mm -hmm. this has been going on for a while. There are multiple efforts to disbar lawyers, et cetera. And, you know, lawyers make sometimes unpopular arguments and that's their job. Their job is to represent sometimes unpopular people and to make arguments which may seem, uh, you know, as long as they're good faith arguments, they may not seem the prevailing wisdom, but sometimes the prevailing wisdom changes. So I think what you're seeing is an attempt, and it's been going on for years, but it's ramped up in the last two years to deprive Republicans of the ability to get lawyers. And they do it not just by filing bar complaints in an organized fashion, but harassing law firms, getting, and and you may recall in the Defensive Marriage Act uh, litigation was one of the times we first saw this come forward. And I think that was, I may be off on the years, 2010, 11, 12, something like that. And there was uh, Paul Clement, a very well-known conservative lawyer, was at a big law firm called King and Spalding. And he was hired by the House of Representatives to defend the law after the Obama Justice Department changed their mind. They'd been defending it in court. Then they said, oh, we're going to change our mind. We're not going to defend it. So the people who passed the legislation, the House, needed a lawyer. The House doesn't have its own legal staff. 
They went out and they hired King and Spalding. It was an organized effort to boycott King and Spalding, to harass them, to get them kicked off of campus interviewing so they couldn't interview on campuses. And there was a threat to go after King and Spalding's clients. So they were not only going to protest at the law firm, they were going to go to clients of the law firm who had nothing to do with this dispute, the biggest one of which was Coca-Cola. And they were going to, and King and Spalding dropped the representation. Paul Clement left the firm and kept the representation, ultimately lost in the U.S. Supreme Court. But this is an effort that's been going on for a decade to attack the ability of Republicans and of conservatives to get lawyers who can represent them. And we're seeing it play out right now. Yeah, yeah. It really is chilling to watch, especially as the the left complains about democracy under democracy in peril from these, um, I don't know, people who, uh, I don't know, drive a truck in the suburbs right, right outside my door here. They're the big threat to the country. And you have these huge, well funded. Um, mobs roaming D.C., Manhattan, and the like, uh, trying to shut down any dissent or even defense of Republicans in court. It's really disturbing. Yes, and, and we've seen this you know, throughout 2020, uh, the mobs that ran through cities, the cancel culture, as we call it now, always existed, but really 2020 was where it ramped up big time. And you're seeing that now that people are afraid to speak out they're particularly afraid to speak out in, in on campuses, and they're very concerned because the internet, I don't think the internet and social media have made people worse, but it has enabled people who have those bad tendencies to weaponize them and to gather up with others who feel the same way. So whereas, you know, the worst you could do when I was growing up is write something nasty about something on the bathroom wall or something like that at school. Here, you can get dozens of your favorite students to gang up on this person online with almost no effort and harass them and isolate them. And so what we're seeing is the social media internet phenomenon where people who have always existed with their bad intentions now have a way to act upon it that uh, had never existed before. And I think we're seeing that really weaponized very heavily against Republicans and against Trump supporters, because if you were to announce at work that you're a Trump supporter or admit to it, there's a pretty good chance one of those mobs is going to come and find you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, tell us briefly, I know we're running low on time here. Tell us briefly about your foundation, the Legal Insurrection Foundation, uh, so we can understand that a bit better. Uh, Legal Insurrection Foundation which is now the operating entity of Legal Insurrection website. We also have another website called criticalrace.org, where we have the most comprehensive database of the teaching of critical race theory or its related theories, sometimes called DEI, sometimes called anti-racism. Throughout higher education, we have databases on higher ed with over 500 schools and the top medical schools and the top elite private schools and the military academies. So the foundation continues to publish the website, but also engages in these research projects. One of actually our first research project as the foundation was covering the Gibson's Bakery versus Oberlin College case. Oh yeah, that was a big win recently. Now I've covered that since the day of the protests. We're approaching six years now, which is hard to believe. But when the trial took place, which I think was 2019, we were the only national outlet to have a reporter in the courtroom every single day. Wow. Uh, it seemed like a great idea when we thought it would be two to three weeks. And when it went into week seven, I'm like choking. It's like, we're going to run out of money here. Okay. But we stuck with it. So those are the sort of things we do. We can invest in the longer term, deeper research sort of projects. We have written briefs in cases. We have uh, co-counseled on litigation. We do a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests. And we've carved out a little bit of a niche for ourselves in the parents' movement of finding moms and teachers who are willing to speak up and tell their stories, bringing them forth on our website, and then elevating them to, to national prominence. So we're research now. We are uh, also continuing to publish the website as it's been for approaching 14 years now. Yeah, well, fantastic. And thanks so much for spending time with us. It's good to finally have you on. 
and we need to get some uh, excellent Mexican food again before too long. If you're ever yeah. out here, uh, hit me up. I'll buy. Well, now I'm definitely coming. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Everybody All right, check out Legal Insurrection. Check out Bill's work. It's been awesome for many years and many more years to come. Thank you. Great. Take care. Okay, thank you, Professor Jacobson. I think I slightly understand Special Master now, so thanks for clearing that up for this um, non-legal mind. But speaking of legal issues, we had talked about um, Joe Biden's weird, bloody speech in front of Independence Hall. I'm sure you've seen the photos, and uh, this happened quite a while ago, five days ago, I think the speech was. But it was outside Independence Hall, and the setting was creepy. It was like... Independence Hall behind him. He did it at night first, so you can't really see Independence Hall other than the lighting, which is directly behind him. It's this blood red light right behind him. And then off to the sides, there are some blue, but of course, the camera's focused on Biden. So it's just Biden surrounded by blood red and black. And then you have two Marines in the background with their white gloves glowing and the rest of them completely shrouded in darkness. It was... The visuals were very weird. Um, I don't know if they were trying to lean into that whole dark Brandon meme that you've heard about maybe on Twitter if you're online far too much like me, but it was weird. The whole thing was weird, but what stuck out to me and a point I kept trying to make, and I wrote an article about it after the speech, is he mentioned a clear and present danger. And uh, this was Joe Biden, and that little phrase stuck out to me because I might not be trained as a fancy lawyer like Professor Jacobson, but I know some legal stuff here and there. And uh, the president basically condemned half the nation as insurrectionists who pose a, quote, clear and present danger, unquote, to the United States. Um, when I made my comments about this and wrote an article about it at Rick, people were like, you're just mad because you used a Tom Clancy novel title or a movie title. Uh Okay, Clancy got the phrase from the legal background, uh, a, a little background on this. World War I, um, you had Woodrow Wilson in charge, who was an authoritarian, racist monster. And uh, his Supreme Court uh, was really restricting free speech. And there was a situation where you had one guy who didn't want uh, people to get drafted for World War I. So he was encouraging people, yeah, don't don't sign up for the draft. Don't do it. They arrest this guy, goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. I didn't know he was a junior. I don't know if his dad was famous or not. But anyway, um, I've heard of his name before. That's some of my legal knowledge. But he mentioned that this draft dodger dude represented a clear and present danger. And this was in effect until almost 1970 as a, a context where we can restrict freedom of speech if somebody presents a clear and present danger. Um, this was written with the help, apparently, reports are saying, of John Meacham, a semi-historian, popular historian, you might say. Michael Beschloss might have had a hand in it. They really messed it up. I, I think they wanted to be part of this important moment, but the speech was weird. It was all over the place. But it just rung out to me this clear and present danger that is only used as a legal pretext to take away people's First Amendment rights. And considering that uh, you have the DOJ slash FBI raid, not raid on Mar-a-Lago, you have Trump's legal team getting rolled up, you have people banned from Twitter for ridiculous reasons or no reason at all. You have all these people canceled and silenced all over the country uh, for speaking their mind not threatening, just saying things that aren't polite to say these days. They are against the grain. They are against Joe Biden. It made me a little bit concerned. And yeah, you can, I'm sure you've uh, processed the speech if you cared about it at all. It was bad. It was dark. And uh, it, it was kind of refreshing to see a lot of people, pretty hardcore never Trumper, saying, what is up with this lighting? And people on the left, more center left, not, you know, the activist Democrat class, but just everyday people saying, this is weird. What is going on here? So I think it backfired to, to the extent that anybody watched it at all. It was clearly a political speech. It was not uh, updating people on policy or a new threat to the country as much as Biden wanted to portray it as such. Um, so none of the major networks carried it. It was carried on cable news. 
and uh, on YouTube. And I watched it on YouTube and there weren't a ton of viewers. So I think nobody really cares because Joe Biden. Anyway, weird speech. And since then, he just continues these attacks. He's gone back and forth. He's like, mega Republicans are the danger. So the natural understanding is so anybody who voted for Trump last time around, which is essentially half the voters, they're all insurrectionists slash terrorists. And then he's like, no, no, no. I'm only talking about elected officials. And then the next day, he's complaining about anybody who voted for Trump. And he's just flip-flopping all over the place. I don't think Joe Biden knows where he is. I don't think um, his far younger and not senile press secretary knows where she is. She is uh, 10 gaffes every time she speaks, maybe. Um, she hasn't been able to decode what this means. And I think it's intended to be vague. Anyone who might have some allegiance to the GOP uh, should be treated as an enemy of the state. Not good, especially heading into the midterms. So um, I think it's going to get a little bumpy heading into the midterms with Trump, uh, with Biden being this reckless already. Um, it does not bode well. Also, Karine Jean-Pierre, his press secretary, she was very upset that Russia has shut down the Nordstrom pipeline. Nordstrom is a fine, fine retailer. I will not dismiss them. I've gotten some excellent dress shoes from that Um a location near me, love Nordstrom, keep up the fine work, but it's called the Nordstream pipeline. And it is the pipe that goes from Russia to Germany, and then it moves on from there. The oil is shunted to other countries from there. Um, yeah, Russia has shut that down. They said at first, eh, it's just maintenance. And then they said, by the way, we're never turning this on again. So once again, trying to pressure the West in the West's and NATO's support for Ukraine. <sighs> Europe is in for it, man. Uh, get, or energy prices in general in the UK are going berserk. They are throughout continental Europe. They're going berserk. One place that doesn't have the problems is France because they have nuclear power plants. And when scoldy 13-year-old Swedish teenagers commanded they shut them down, they laughed, and then they left them alone. Uh, Germany cowered in fear at a 13-year-old Swedish teenager, and uh, they shut down all their nuke plants, uh, trying to get rid of coal plants. And what are they doing now? Well, they don't have enough energy, so they're burning coal. And they're burning the dirty coal that they mine right there in Germany, not the comparatively cleaner forms of coal that you can get from West Virginia, from Australia, from other places around the globe. So, um, yeah, it is going to be a very, very rough winter uh, for Europe. Um, the UK is already these just astronomical prices going on. Uh, the UK um, update, Liz Truss is the new prime minister of the Conservative Party. She succeeds Bojo, Boris Johnson. That's what his friends like me call him. Um, I don't know anything about her. It sounds like she's kind of the equivalent of a Republican squish rhino type. Um, just the British version of that. Would that be a Kino, a Chino, conservative in name only? I don't know, but uh, we will see how that goes. Well, the polls have been going slightly better for the Democrats heading into the midterms. I don't trust it. This is very normal. This is very typical. Um, the fading days of summer when it's especially hard to poll, uh, the Democrats already start picking up and then they fall back down again. So I think it'll be something along those lines. We will see um, if uh, Biden succeeds in making the election all about Donald Trump. It could have more legs. But um, yeah, the, the end of summer is not a great time to be uh, polling people because people are out on vacation or just taking weekends off, taking a couple extra days off work to get in the last bit of summer to do this trip or that trip or to visit family or whatever. So this is very typical um, in a couple weeks from now that I think the polls will uh, make a little bit more sense. But Nancy Pelosi, um, polls or no polls, she is already looking for that golden parachute. Apparently, according to Fox Business, she is uh, harassing President Biden because she wants to become the next U.S. ambassador to Italy. She probably owns a lot of property in Tuscany, maybe a pita terre in Roma herself. Um, I don't know what it is again, but I, I think it's very telling that uh, Nancy Pelosi is like, I am getting out of Dodge, folks. I am going to Italy for uh, my retirement years. Maybe my husband can drive drunk and pay off the carbonaries, uh, not to arrest him for driving drunk. Um, that says 
Watch what people do, not what they say. That's always kind of good advice in politics. That was one of my issues with people unfairly bashing Trump. Obviously, he had lots of stuff to criticize, but it was kind of crazy when they're like, did you see the words that he said? And you're like, okay, but look what he's doing. Um, Biden's kind of the opposite. He's saying words like unity and we're going to fix energy and then does the complete opposite. So, um, yeah, watch what people do. And the fact that uh, Pelosi wants to give up one of the most powerful positions on earth uh, to be an ambassador to, to uh, Italy means she just wants to chill. She wants to uh, ride off into that sunset. Another thing the press has been big on is you got this weird situation in Pennsylvania. Okay, they're running for the Senate. You have Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, as seen on television. And you have John Fetterman, who's this weird dude who just strange lumbering figure. It, it finally hit me who he looks like. He looks like Gru from the Despicable Me movies, especially since he's always wearing these jet black hoodies and he's all kind of cloaked. But the poor dude, uh, on primary day, he had a stroke. And he's like in his 40s. I figured, oh, he must be in his 70s or something. No, the dude's in his 40s. He's this big lumbering goofball. Does not look like he's in shape. He has this severe stroke. Hey, I hope you get healthy, man. Good for you. But he has been kind of uh, not around since that happened. What, a month and a half ago? Something like that? Um, his media team, they're trying to post tiny little clips where he doesn't stumble over his words. But um, when they've shown video of him talking to crowds, he's mixing up words, he's slurring, which is normal for a guy who just had a stroke. Um, they've been covering this up well. The uh, press has been covering it for him uh, by just making fun of Dr. Oz because he's kind of a goofy dude. I don't know. I, I, I know a lot of Pennsylvania Republicans weren't thrilled when Trump endorsed him and he ended up squeaking through the Republican primary. But um, to their credit, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette has said, hey, um, this Fetterman situation with his health, this is not good. You know, what do you do in the Senate? You talk. You interact with people. You're out there on the floor shaking hands and making deals. This guy can't do either right now. And it's been a long time. And they've been saying, oh, no, we're going to wait another week. And yeah, a month and a half in, he's not getting a lot better. He hasn't fully recovered. And uh, he's ducking debates with Dr. Oz. And he's trying to pass it as, oh, I won't dignify his candidacy by appearing on stage with him. It's like, dude, you got to debate him. That's how it works. We have a... Uh, the governor's race here in Arizona, we have Katie Hobbs, who's the Democrat. We have Carrie Lake, who's the Republican. And Carrie Lake's like, all right, let's debate, let's debate. And the Democrat's like, no, I won't dignify you by sharing a stage. No, you got to debate. The voters need to decide. If you're afraid to debate your uh, opponent from across the aisle, you are going to be horrible in the Senate, in the governor's mansion. We don't have a mansion here in Arizona. We should have a governor's hacienda here. That'd be kind of cool. Maybe some horses out back. Anyway, um, good for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette who's saying their quote was, John Fetterman is either healthy and he's dodging the debate because he doesn't want to answer for his radical left positions or he's too sick to participate in the debate. Neither of these are good and uh, good for the local media for calling him out on this. It's weird. It's weird and creepy. And yeah, you don't need to make fun of the dude for having a stroke. I wouldn't want that. I, I know uh, years ago, somebody in my family had one at a fairly young age, and they couldn't speak right and things like that. It cleared up quickly, thank God. But um, yeah, this is hung on for a month and a half, and it doesn't seem to be getting better. You cannot function as a senator uh, acting like this for six years. It's just bizarre. So uh, keep an eye on that news story. Another thing that's kind of interesting, Russia. They are not doing well in Ukraine. Ukraine has taken the offensive. They are fighting and trying, apparently, to capture Kursan back from the dirty commie Ruskies. Sorry, I'm, I'm a Cold War kid. I still think of them that way. But um, Ukraine is still punching above their weight. They're still doing well. They still have a tough road to hoe. But uh, we'll see. Uh, they are causing a lot of damage to Russian forces and materiel. The problem is with Russia, especially with all these sanctions, they can't just replace all this material. They are burning off shells and stuff from the old Soviet days. Those are very tough to make. 
especially when you don't have a lot of the um, essential elements required to make these things. So they are just like kind of burning through old stock and not building new stuff to replace it with. Well, they're running out of high tech parts as well. And now this is how bad it's gotten. Russian is Russia is now buying weapons from North Korea. Not exactly your most modern, sleek, um, friendly military, um, but that's pretty bad. They can't get them anymore from China. I guess China has chilled out about um, Russia since they've been so incompetent in their planned week to 10-day invasion of Ukraine to subjugate Ukraine. And uh, yeah, Russia is now relying on North Korea, that powerhouse. So it does not uh, bode well for Russia. In other international news, and this is actually positive news, I follow a lot of Latin American politics. Um, you don't see it reported much in the press, which is just weird to me, especially living along the border. It's like, okay, these countries are in our hemisphere. We should have much closer relations with them for good or bad. You know, keep an eye on the bad ones, uh, befriend the good ones, because that is a big expanse of land and population just south of us. Well, Chile has uh, elected uh, basically a socialist president. This was a while ago. They're always flipping between someone who's really conservative to someone really liberal. They've been trending socialist for a while. Their dude won, the left's dude won. And what he did is he says, I am going to introduce a brand new constitution for Chile. I am going to toss the old one, throw it in the paper shredder and have this new progressive constitution. Chilean law means that needs to be approved by the voters and people like the New York Times, when they would deign to comment on something happening that doesn't involve Donald Trump, they were like, this is great. It guarantees all these rights. This is fantastic. It legalizes abortion. New York Times was thrilled about that. I guess they don't really care for babies in Santiago or something like that. Um, well, it went to the voters and voters crushed it. They crushed the commie constitution. Good for you, Chile. That's awesome. I'm sure a lot of the people who voted for the left were like, oh, okay, this is a bridge too far. We're not doing this. And uh, it just got clobbered by more than 20 per percentage points. This thing went down in flames. It's very good news because a lot of these things are funded directly or indirectly by Cuba. All these uh, left-leaning governments, what Cuba does, they don't want their fingerprints on it directly. So they will run diplomatic interference for the lefties throughout Latin America then they funnel money into Venezuela, and then Venezuela distributes it throughout Latin American countries to fund these far-left people. One of the recent victors uh, was this guy, I believe his name is Gust Gustavo Petro, I think, in Colombia. Um, he used to be a terrorist, a lefty terrorist. He was elected to run Colombia about a month, month and a half ago. So you've seen a lot of these... Um, Governments friendly to the U.S., friendly to free markets and limited government, them falling one by one. Honduras, about a year ago, um, had their last guy who was kind of conservative, but he was pretty corrupt too, but he was ousted by a socialist. You have that socialist president there trying to do these massive reforms, even talking of changing the constitution, just like Chile, but voters are really souring on her really, really quickly because uh, she is not effective and leftist policies do not work. So keep an eye on Latin America. This was a rare, uh, I don't know, bolt of sunshine into what is going on down down there. And hopefully uh, sanity will return to that entire region because like Colombia, especially, that place has been a stalwart ally and they've been doing great economically, just absolutely fantastic. You know, some of the best performance in all of South America and they don't really have the territory or the raw materials or the natural resources that all these other countries do, like Brazil and Argentina. Um, and they are just kicking butt in high finance and other things. Panama is always kicking butt and that stuff. So um, it'll be interesting to see. But keep an eye on that. Good for you, Chilenos. Thank you for voting for freedom. The all-important song of the week. Uh, it's a new band I'm not familiar with, um, but they were described as a post-punk band. I love my post-punk. A little background on post-punk. It's kind of a catch-all genre. It's stuff that came after punk. That's that's not very descriptive. But basically, punk, it was kind of a creative cul-de-sac. You had all these bands screaming and shouting and not learning how to play their instruments. And after about a year and a half, people were like, okay, we're tired of that. Let's try something new. 
including the musicians. So they actually kind of by then learned how to play their instruments and went off in other directions. But post-punk usually means these kind of jangly, quick-time signature shifts, kind of nervous energy going on. And I love that style of music. And um, Joy Division is probably considered the first post-punk band, I would figure, or close to it. But um, there's a new band from Brooklyn. Their name's Gross. It's called Scab, but it's S-C-A-B as initials because they didn't know what the heck to call their band. So they just took all the band's first names and turned it into their name. But they have a cool song called Tuesday, which was actually inspired by a quote from Seinfeld, which... We must honor that. Um, here is Kramer and Newman and Jerry. What's today? What's Thursday? Really? Feels like Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday has no feel. Monday has a feel. Friday has a feel. Sunday has a feel. I feel Tuesday and Wednesday. All right, shut up to both of you. You're making me nervous. So they took this whole Tuesday doesn't have a feel concept and wrote an entire song about it. This is Tuesday by Scab. is it for a wonderful show. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember to subscribe if you haven't yet subscribed. And uh, please also review the podcast. We can really use your um, five stars and your fine reviews. Um, this week, the theme should be how great looking I am. Yes, this is an audio only podcast, but just assume, you know, I was dressed super nice for this interview. Don't ask uh, Mr. Jacobson about this, but I was dressed really nice, looked stylish, fit. Looks like I've been working out, frankly. So um, if you could, in this week's reviews, say how incredibly handsome I look, that would be very good and strong. I look mighty. I should start working out soon. Anyway, thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Ricochet. Join the conversation.